0: Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is powered by Christianity Today. JR, super good to see you. You as well, Doug. Always great to spend time with
1: you, brother. Yeah, man. It's crazy to think we're like in March right now, you know? Hard to believe, man. Hard to believe. One of the things we wanted to do before we jump into this episode, which I know you and I are really excited about our guest. Giddy. Is uh, we just want to tell some stories. Yeah. So, Sometimes we just need to be storytellers, right? Mm-hmm. So what's a, what's a story that you, what's been rolling around your head and heart? What are you excited about? I don't even know what you're going to yeah. say. So yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm eager to hear.
0: <laughs> yeah, this, so this story actually starts right at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, in almost, almost a year to this day, uh, I was sitting in my house and I heard a knock on the door and uh, the gentleman, there's a gentleman who, who owns a fly fishing shop that is down the street from where I live. He's an older gentleman. He stopped by and he said, uh, he said, Doug, I was, I was out walking. I found $20 on the ground. And, and as I was walking, I thought, I don't need this money. You know, what, what do I do with it? And he said, and I know you're a pastor. And so I decided I was just going to give it to you because I know you can help someone with it. And man, like, so for the last year, Bob's been dropping off. off. Bob's not a Christian. Like Bob doesn't go to, to church. Um, he, he just, that's not his thing. He's a fly fisherman. Uh, and he runs this really cool old fly shop, the classic fly fisherman. Check it out online. It's awesome. Anyways. But what is so cool is since, since that day, almost, almost every other month, there's an envelope that shows up in my mailbox uh-huh. from Bob saying, do good with this.
1: Wow. And, wow. uh,
0: just, just a few weeks ago, uh, I stopped in the shop. I had to drop something off. He was going to take a look at for me, and we were catching up and stuff. He goes, hey, what's the name of your church again? And I said, oh, you know, the Renewed Community. And, and I'm looking at something and he's, he's do, I, I didn't know, even know what he was doing. And I sit down and we're sharing a cup of coffee together. And he throws a check across the table for a, a, a large amount of money. And he just wow. said, he just said, um, Doug, I'm just grateful that I know you. I'm grateful that you and your church help people. And my, my only ask is this, just tell me how it helps somebody. Wow. And it's like the kingdom of God is showing up in the classic fly fisherman, uh, And it's just been amazing to see how God is at work there and how God is working yeah, through Bob great. in the season is just like super, super cool. So-, so,
1: so make sure you go back to tell him that my family and I loved our vacation in Fiji. Make sure he says, Mate, make sure you know, he, he knows just how appreciative we are of that check. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I'll let him know. Oh, so good.
0: But yeah, I I think it's just one of those things where I'm so deeply encouraged by how, you know, Wesley talked about the provenient grace of God, like going before. And I never thought I'd, I I can't wait to tell the story a year from now when I can say, yeah, uh, you know, this man entered in the kingdom of heaven by giving. (laughs) Like that's how it happened. So that's awesome. Super grateful for that. How about you, JR? What's the story that you've got to share?
1: Well, as you know, Doug, when we have two sons, 14 and 11, and when they turn 10, I invite them in if they want to. I'll never force them to, but invite them into reading through the Bible in a year with dad every morning uh, together. And if we do that in a year and our time reading through the Bible together, that they get to pick a trip to go anywhere they want for three or four days, somewhere in the lower 48 states when we're done. And so, our 11 year old, who at the time was 10 uh, a year ago this month, um, when he he, uh, I just said, hey, do you want to do this like your older brother? And he said, heck yeah. And so uh, we're really grateful. We we finished. And yeah. uh, it was a
2: wonderful year
1: together with Bennett. And uh, just love the opportunity to spend time with him in the morning. So mm. I, re- I read the Old Testament because it's a little bit longer and has a lot of funky names. And then he would read the New Testament passage. And then we would read a psalm or proverb together out loud, kind of a responsive reading. So I'll say odds or evens. You want the odd number? Of Psalm 47, or do you want the even number, And then we would just go back and forth and then pray, just about 20, 25 minutes uh, every morning to do that. And it's just, it was just such a joy, just going in the sunroom, when he would get up, we'd just come down, we'd get our Bibles and our notebooks and look at our reading plan together where we're at for the day. And it just was I told him the last month, when we were rolling in kind of the final turn there, we could see the finish line. I said, "You know, buddy, I'm so excited." but I'm, I'm kind of sad too, because this is going to come to an end and we can of course keep reading the Bible, but it's been such a great year together. I'm, as a dad, I'm already starting to grieve this because I loved this quality time together every morning together. And I think doing it during a pandemic made it that much more rich mm-hmm. together and just spending quality time together. And it just made it more meaningful. And then, especially during the time of lockdown it was like well we've got some extra time why don't we just keep reading <laughs> so we'd read sometimes two or three of our days on the reading plan together so anyway that was such a joy uh to be able to do that and uh he he loves russell wilson of the seattle seahawks mm. and uh so he's chosen seattle so we're going to do the space needle and go hiking at mount rainier and go kayaking and enjoy clam chowder and we're going to see if we can get to a seattle seahawks game so he can He can watch Russell Wilson play. So, dude, that's uh, awesome. Well, yeah, congratulations to
0: your son, Bennett. That's just so encouraging, so exciting. Yeah.
1: When you think about it, 10 years old, you don't, there aren't many goals that you set in your life when you're 10 that you work on every day for a year, a tenth of your life. And uh, so, in addition to reading the Bible, just the fact that he set a goal and he knew at any time he could jump off the train, but he stuck with it for an entire year. Uh, it was pretty fun uh, to celebrate that with him. And uh, one one extra layer to that is we we also invited 12 men, you being one of them, that just one time during the year that they would write a letter of encouragement. And I really appreciated the letter you, you wrote to Bennett of just saying, hey, being in the scriptures is great. And I'm proud of you and who you're becoming. And here's my favorite passage of scripture. And so once a month, you know, he had a different man write him a letter. And we saved them and they're going to go in this kind of notebook that we make, uh, at the end of the year. Uh, but I just, I just love the fact there are 12 men that love Jesus and that believe in Bennett and care for him, the people that he looks up to that were just encouraging him in his journey. So anyway, we're grateful to do it. And I told him just because we finished the Bible doesn't mean we put it on the shelf and never read it again. <laughs> Hopefully this wets the appetite that we yeah. continue to do this together, but also individually as well. So anyway, it was, uh, Yeah, that that was a really meaningful, meaningful year together with both of my sons. uh, And I think especially in a pandemic with my youngest. Yeah, that's
0: awesome, man. So grateful for the time and the, I love the planning. And it's like, this is, and I remember you saying, it's not hard. You just have to plan it. And as long as it's out there. it just
1: takes a little bit of intentional (laughs) effort and planning on your part. But once you get into it, it's, and if you're wondering about this, shoot me an email uh, we'd love to help you. We have helped dozens of parents with their children. It doesn't have to be father, son. We've seen fathers and daughters. We've seen moms and dads with daughters. We've seen all sorts of combos. But for our sons, when they turn 10, we just thought that was a good idea. And if you want any resources, there are some articles I've written on it. I can send you the reading plan itself. Just shoot me an email, uh, Briggs at kairospartnerships.org. I'll send you all the resources that you need if you're thinking about doing that with your child.
0: Yeah, so- both JR and I are giddy for the next conversation that we're about to have. Uh, we were super fortunate to have an opportunity to interview AJ Swoboda again. Uh, he's a he's a repeat. The first time we interviewed him was back in September, or sorry, it was back season one, episode seventeen. is back actually in July of two thousand and nineteen. And so we're just super super glad to have him back, um, and just to have this great opportunity to just sit down with one of our dear friends.
1: A.J. Swoboda is Assistant Professor of Bible, Theology, and World Christianity at Bushnell University in Eugene, Oregon. He also leads a Doctor of Ministry cohort on the Holy Spirit and Leadership at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's the author or editor of numerous books, including Subversive Sabbath, winner of a Christianity Today Book Award, and an award of merit for CT's Beautiful Orthodoxy Book of the Year. He speaks regularly at conferences, churches, camps, and retreats. Swoboda served for 10 years as the lead pastor at Theophilus Church in urban Portland. He's the founder and former director of the Blessed Earth Northwest and served as executive director of the Seminary Stewardship Alliance. We hope you enjoy this conversation with our friend, A.J. Swoboda.
0: A.J., it's great to have you back on the show, brother. Holy smokes, it's a joy to be with you. Yeah, it's it's wild to think. You were here with us, Season 1, Episode 17, back in July of 2019. So that's been a couple years. So what have you been up to since then?
2: <laughs> yeah, that was a while ago and at a very vulnerable time in my life. At, at that point in my life and, and that point in my journey, I had recently transitioned um, out of pastoral work and and was really discerning what God was inviting me into. It was after your interview of me that I was invited to, uh, apply to teach, um, be a professor, uh, of Bible and theology. And I accepted that role. I teach Bible and theology at, as the assistant professor of Bible theology at Bushnell university in Eugene, uh, Oregon, which is actually my wife's hometown and where I went to college. And so all of our families here and at the end of the day, I couldn't see it at the time, but God, God had his hand all over that, that challenging mm-hmm. season for us. Mm.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, that's exciting. Cause I know you were in that state of wondering what's next and trying to be obedient, but we don't know what the next step looks like. So, uh, give us just a personal pandemic update. I'm curious, how are you different or how have you been formed in the midst of this really uncertain, tenuous, whatever adjective we want to use a uh, year that we've been in? What have you learned? What have you unlearned? What have you been reminded of, of yourself, of God, of life, any direction you want to take it, but how has it impacted
2: you personally? Yeah, there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of ways that that one could take that. I would suspect maybe the 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 one thing worth reporting here is um, I am I'm just astonishingly I I'm I'm overwhelmed by how much I miss church. Mm. Um, this l- just deep longing to take communion that somebody has handed to me rather than communion that I pulled out of the pantry 5 minutes before my family serves each other the Eucharist. I long, I just long for the smells of a church gathering, you know, the, the, the room filled with breath and, and humanity and yeah, I miss church. Mm-hmm. I just miss God's people. But with that, um, our family, um, had decided to, uh, enter a new dimension of our spiritual uh, maturity, and we bought a hot tub, and <laughs> that really has proven to be sort of a crossing from the plains of Moab into the promised land of' um, <laughs> it's been, it's been life giving and so yeah. I, 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 very, very often we just get in the hot tub and just spend time talking, and that 's been very, very sweet.
1: Yeah, that's great. I, I wonder if our mutual friend Keys Kiesler had anything to do with encouraging you to get a hot tub, but uh, you know, maybe that's for <laughs>
2: another time. <laughs> I, I blame him for many things in my life, but the hot tub was <laughs> entirely driven by my wife, and I was skeptical at first, uh, but she she just changed she changed my mind, and I'm so grateful to God. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's 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 good on every level. Um, for our life. And, and I just feel like I know God more now because of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, and you talked about missing communion.
1: In fact, one of the things I want to quote, which is not from your new book, which we want to get to, it's actually something I put uh, in something that I wrote, quoting you, where you talked about communion. Uh, and I just, I'm not surprised that you miss communion because you said this, because if we don't come to the table as broken as the bread and as dark as the wine, then you don't deserve to partake -hmm. At the body and blood of Christ is the bread and wine. We are confronted with a God big enough to save us from our sins, and yet tiny enough to get stuck between your teeth. Mm. I I just, I just love that line. That's a great line.
2: That's good writing. Whoever wrote that, (laughs) (laughs) that would be you, brother. It's, uh, you know, the the my my poor. I'm sitting in my office here. Student after student who comes into my office who. You know, feels ashamed for being single or something like that, and I'm constantly reminding uh, my students that God's word in the garden was, "It's not good for man to be alone." He doesn't say it's not good for man to be unmarried. Mm. Uh, um, there, there and there's, of course, a whole generation of of single people who feel like that God is somehow looking. The the call there is to is to community, and it really is not good for us to be alone. This just this isn't it, it's it's inhumane, um, and. I long for the day that you know we we are back to not being forced uh into the silence, but we get to go to the silence because we we have rich relationships in our life again. It's just yeah the aloneness factor is very 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 hard, yeah,
1: yeah, yep, thanks for sharing that and i you do have a new book out we're really excited about uh that we wanna uh, just give you an opportunity to talk about it um called after Doubt: How to Question Your Fate without Faith without Losing it and uh It seems like your dominating question that you're dealing with in this book, correct me if I'm wrong, is can I question my faith without losing it? Mm -hmm. So, AJ, can we?
2: Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, Well, if if I can answer my own question, the answer is yes. Um, And that is the subtitle of the book, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. So it has become common stock for me. I mean, I've spent 25 years of my life serving the spiritual um, journeys. Uh, the Christian journeys of essentially college age students and just a little older than college students. For 10 years, I was a college student. Uh, I've been a college pastor now for a couple of years. And for 10 years, I was a church planter in Portland that reached a lot of young people. And the number of times now that we have walked through just excruciating stories of uh, individuals who, in a fairly short period of time, have deconstructed uh, their, their faith to such a degree that it does not resemble historic Christianity uh, is beyond count. And I really began to suspect a few years ago that we, we, we need to begin to identify some very clear um, steps, pathways for people walking through deconstruction and doubt in which they can follow Jesus in them. And not treat doubt as some kind of Siberia of the Christian life, like it 's where you go if you 're in trouble, like doubt can actually be a legitimate place to find the living God, and not that we don 't want to valorize it and make doubt the goal, but for those that walk through it, we have got to baptize that experience in grace mm. and the The premise of this book is if you uh, if you are um If you're walking through these experiences, it does not have to be the end of your faith. Here's this, and I'll I'll finish by saying this. One of the marks of somebody I've noticed who's walking through deconstruction is they somehow have come up with the idea that the questions they are asking is somehow unique, interesting, or special. And what I want to say is there is not a new question under the sun. And every question we can come up with, we have 2,000 years of Christians wrestling with these issues. And to assume that my questions are inerrant and my deconstruction is somehow unique is, frankly, historically snobbish, to borrow (laughs) C.S. Lewis. Mm. Every question has been asked. And we have 2,000 years of people, 3,000 years of people who have done us a service of being a cloud of witnesses that don't give us a bunch of downloaded information, but give us voices and experiences that are so important for us to hear. So this is my way of saying we're not, there's, there's no new question under the sun. Uh, We're just doing it really fast and doing it over social media and not with a group of people. Mm. So in some ways, I I think I I really appreciate that
0: because one of the things that that I've noticed in the midst and from a pastor's perspective, it gets really frustrating when you see the newest uh, celebrity pastor, Christian sort of go through this public Uh, this private deconstruction that ends in a public announcement of I'm no longer Christian. I'm sorry for leading you all astray. It's just done. So like what, I mean, how do people get there? And I know for pastor, like for me, that, that creates a sense of anxiety, right? Like how do I shepherd folks as their, their hero is kind of moved in this direction and there's multiple issues, but yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, Look, I want to identify two, two things in what you just said, Doug, because by the way, when I was a shepherd, when I was a pastor, when I would see that stuff, I mean, it would, it would, it would send me into a spiral of like, um, I'm going to be out of a job. I mean, it, often it was economic. Like, I'm terrified of people in my church reading this stuff. You know, if everybody in my church starts listening to the liturgists, I'm not going to have a job. You know, and I know that sounds so silly that I'm getting to economics, but this is like our livelihood you know, and, and we've, you know, live in in a way that what people, the the stuff that people listen to impacts a community in, in profound ways. So two, two things that, that, that stand out to me. Number one is, um, I'm, I'm profoundly grateful for the evangelical tradition of which I, I, I found Jesus in. I mean, I was 16 years old when I met Jesus and I've learned a great deal from the evangelical tradition that I I find myself in that's going through some very weird moments in its own history right now but the way that we did conversion a lot of the time was we would do this thing where there's a big group of people and if you want to follow Jesus you raise your hand and and a lot of the ways in which we came to Jesus was um was that you know we followed because there was this group of people that were going with us and we had a crowd that was walking. In. And part of the reason I came to faith was because those around me had come to faith too. And I wanted to be a part of the crowd. Well, the, the problem is that's not a problem. The problem is when the crowd leaves and we, we are very social beings. And so in a lot of ways, we believe in Jesus because we go with people, but sometimes people walk away from Jesus because people are walking away from Jesus. And so there's a social dynamic to faith that we haven't really come to terms with. That we do become the people we listen to. we do become a crowd in a lot of ways, and that if we spend all of our life listening to podcasts that deconstruct faith, amazing, we start deconstructing our faith. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Second thing is that we are so that what social media has accomplished is it has created the most ethnocentric people possible. And what I mean by that, you know, right now, There is a revival. It's not a revival. There is a, a mass move towards Jesus in Iran, in China, and in Korea. I mean, these spaces where masses of people, Africa, masses of people coming to Jesus. One of the largest moves to the gospel in church history. But I get on Facebook and I see a Christian celebrity who's decided to deconstruct their faith. And I assume that what that guy is going through is what everybody's going through. And I assume that what's on my Facebook feed is what's happening in the world. Mm. We are so ethnocentric that we have come to the place to believe what is on our Facebook feed is what's happening in the world. For every white progressive person that is deconstructing Christianity right now, there are five people in color in this world, of color in this world, who are falling in love with Jesus, who have no other hope. Mm. And what I what 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 is very troubling to me is we assume our Facebook feeds are actually reflections of the real world. Mm. The Mm. kingdom of God is a little bit broader than America. Mm. Amen. And I say that sarcastically. Obviously, yes, white progressive affluent people are deconstructing their faith, but shocking. Poor people of color in every other part of the world are falling in love with Jesus. It's like Jesus meant what he said, that it's really hard to be rich and enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Mm. Shocking.
1: Yeah. Well, when I think of the topic of your book, I think of Uh, Jude 22, right? Be merciful and patient with those who doubt. Um, While at the same time, I know there are people that say that's great. And AJ, I see the point of your book and I'm interested in your book, but AJ, how do you counter that with something like James 1 6, right? So, James 1 and Jude 22. So, you know, where we don't, we're not supposed to doubt, right? We're blown, uh, tossed by the wind on the sea. So, how do we balance Jude 22 and James 1? when it comes to thinking about doubt and deconstruction.
2: This may sound, sound a bit revolutionary um, um, or, or, or a bit. Um, yeah, but maybe, maybe a bit revolutionary, but, but I think our task as Christians is to read the whole Bible. And, and that task, it's a challenging task. You know, uh, Tim Keller says, why do we read the whole Bible? Cause it's there, you know, it's, it's because it deserves to be read the whole thing. and, when I take James one and isolate that verse, I I can easily beat up people walking through doubt. But when I counter that and 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 put that in paradox with Jude, where we are told to be merciful with those in doubt, and then counter that with the fact that we have a disciple who's known for doubt, uh, doubting Thomas, uh, who eventually, by the way, became the missionary who went to India. And if you've ever met an Indian Christian with the last name Thomas, it's because. For 2,000 years, there have been Christians who met Jesus because of Thomas's work. Um, yeah, James 1 matters, but so does Jude, and so does the story of Thomas, and so does the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Psalms. That has to do with uh, time and time again, lament and questions and not knowing what to do. Um, I, think, I think what scripture would tell us is that we should never make doubt the goal. And, and here's what I mean by that. You know, People who are being de- or going through deconstruction right now are being torn by, frankly, a conservative form of Christianity that says doubt is evil and wrong, and if you do it, then you're bad, Mm. and a progressive form of Christianity that says the only way to God is through doubt. And you have these two conflicting extremes that are tearing people to the right and the left, when in reality, the goal is not to the right or the left. The goal is Jesus, right here and right now. And if you're walking through doubt, Jesus is here. If you're walking through cynicism, Jesus is here. If you're walking through same-sex attraction, Jesus is here. If you are walking through an illness, Jesus is here. Everywhere we are, we are invited to worship Jesus, and the doubter gets that as much as anybody. Hmm. By Hmm. the way, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 27, right before Jesus gives the Great Commission, it says that they worship Jesus on the mountain, and some doubt it. And mm-hmm. what is powerful to me there is Jesus in his resurrected state seems to be okay with doubters coming to worship him. Mm. Yeah.
1: When I teach on that passage, I I make sure we don't do just Matthew 18 or 28, 18 to 20. Like I back it up for that reason. Like what an uh, unbelievable Jesus who's willing to give his last lecture to a group of people that still yeah. don't believe him fully.
2: Yeah. Like What a God <laughs> who had, had flippant seen the resurrection. This, yeah. this is not, this is not people, this is not people who, who, you know, sort of didn't have any evidence or like, you know, any reasons for belief. I mean, these are people who stuck their hands in the holes in Jesus' side in the hand, and they still struggled with doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the encounter with the resurrected Christ does not always clean up all the doubt. From mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. Time to time you go through that. So all that to say, you know, you, you read Mother Teresa's final, her journals. And there were moments in her life, friend, where she, friends, where she spent her life serving the poor. She gave her life to follow the word of Jesus. And she openly said, God, I don't know where you are. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard you speak to me for 50 years. Yeah, Who man. are you? And I, I tell you, if Mother Teresa can be as faithful to Jesus as she was and walk through those kinds of experiences, then I can only assume uh, people like me should be able to go through the same thing.
1: Yeah. And there's another spunky uh Teresa that I love, Saint Teresa of Avila, one of one of my favorite prayers ever uttered was she said, God, I I don't love you. God, I don't want to love you, but God, I want to want to love you. <laughs> that sounds like kind of the posture of what you're talking about in your book here. Yeah. And I know that, you know, so here's here's the and I think you've touched on this, which is great that doubt is terrible on one end, or doubt is the goal on the other end, but the what we're after is Jesus how can we draw? So just articulate a little bit more on this. So how can we draw on our own deconstruction without staying there? I mean, there's another AJ friend of ours who's been on the podcast before, AJ Sherrill, and he tweeted recently, and I love this. He said, deconstruction is like Las Vegas. It's okay from time to time to drive down the strip, but it's a terrible and dangerous thing to live there. (laughs) That's pretty good. So how do we make sure that it's okay to drive down the strip in Vegas, but not live there? How do we how do we do yeah. that with our deconstruction?
2: Well, to, I think two. I, I, I'd say two things. The, the first is um, that we need to identify and name that there is there is, and I again I have a whole chapter on this, but there there is a whole, there is a difference between good deconstruction and bad deconstruction. Okay, now what, what is the difference between those two? How can I make such a blanket statement? Well, Jesus deconstructed. I mean, when you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, when he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he is deconstructing bad interpretations of the Old Testament. Martin Luther deconstructed. Protestantism is a deconstructed form of Catholicism. And as a Protestant, there are many things I'm grateful that Luther contributed to our faith tradition. Not all the things. He was a radical anti-Semite, and that's a different conversation. But um, there are many things he didn't do that was good. But he did some things that were very, 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 very important. Deconstruction can be very, very good. A good form of deconstruction is this. When I met Jesus at 16 years old, the first church I went to was a conservative evangelical church in my hometown, a church I'm very grateful for. They taught me how to love the Bible. They taught me how to worship. They taught me what repentance looks like. They taught me how to share my faith. They taught me the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But they also gave me a very, very low view of women. Now, at some point along the way, after studying the Bible a little bit, reflecting on my own life, I began to understand that some of the things I received from that community were very, very good. But there was also some stuff that needed to be thought through a little bit more. You know, Eugene Peterson in one of his books uses the analogy that when you go to the hospital, you go to get healthy. But from time to time, when you go to the hospital to get healthy, you end up picking up a disease at the hospital. And I think every human being who has ever met Jesus and found a community of faith that they begin to follow Jesus with, will end up picking up some stuff that at some point needs to be, needs to be dealt with. Um, Peterson, they, they call it an iatrogenic disease, a disease that you pick up when you go to the hospital. Good deconstruction is us taking really seriously our theological family of origin and being willing to receive the good, and be willing to undo some of the things that were really, really not good. And that's where things like orthodoxy and the Bible (laughs) really are important, is discerning the good from the bad. I would say that bad destruction, bad deconstruction, is when we deconstruct, not because we're seeking Jesus, but we're deconstructing simply because the Bible says some things we don't like, or because we're doing some things the Bible says we shouldn't, and rather than deal with the fact that we're not doing it, we just reject the Bible. Um, at the end of the day, that's not good deconstruction. That's me just cutting the Bible apart because it doesn't fit what I'm doing or what I think. Um, I had a student in my class who w- was sitting in here and she said, she's, she said to me, you know, I think God has evolved. And I said, what do you mean you think God has evolved? And she said, well, I think God, since the Bible, uh, maybe God inspired the Bible, but I think God has evolved and God thinks differently now. And maybe thinks differently about you know, sexuality or politics, but all these things. And I said, well, what do you think God has in- evolved into? And she described what she thought God was like. And I said, that doesn't sound like God. That sounds like you. Mm. Mm. And I said, what you really mean is that God is in- increasingly desiring to be like you. And that is a bad deconstruction. Mm. When we, the created people uh, the, in the image of God, begin to make God back in our image, that's a very, very bad form of deconstruction.
1: Yeah, that sounds a lot like uh, Mark Twain. All right. What was his famous quote? It, it ain't the parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the part that I parts that I do. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of truth in that, right? Yep. Like I, if I don't like it in our culture today, it's we'll just cast it off, yes, and just say it's not true or I doubt it because yep. it doesn't fit into my preferences. Yep, that's, that's a dangerous place to be.
2: It is. No, no. To the to the second point, you asked because you asked a really good question that I I didn't dance around, but it kind of laid laid the groundwork for what I wanted to say, and that is in the in the Thomas story this question of well, what do we do practically if we walk through doubt and deconstruction? In the Thomas story, Thomas does not believe in the resurrection. He does not believe Jesus is resurrected. Um, but the other disciples have experienced it. And they tell, G- they tell Thomas Jesus is resurrected. And I, lo- I just love it. it. To me, it's one of my favorite things. Jesus waits a whole week before coming to show up to show Thomas's body. Uh, Dallas Willard in one of his books said that Jesus from time to time let us stew in our doubt and our, our, our epistemic problems. He doesn't rush in to fix it. But what I love about that is it was the community, it was the resurrected community that was pointing Thomas to the resurrection. And why that's important for us is this. I'll say this again. If we spend our lives filling our mind with every reason why the Bible's wrong, Or why the faith is wrong or why Christianity needs to be undone. We will follow that. But if we spend our life surrounding us ourselves with people that point to the resurrected Christ, guess what we'll find? Mm. Mm. One of the most critical things we can do is have a group of people around us that point us to resurrected Jesus. There's there's a line, by the way, in one of, uh, sorry, I'm talking too much. One of my favorite lines is... uh, from an early church monk who says, <laughs> he says, don't live with the heretics, but he doesn't say don't be friends with the heretics. He said, just don't live with them. Hmm. And, and here, here's what, how this applies. We do become the things that are going through our earpods. We really do. We really do. And with, if we live with the heretics, we will become a heretic.
0: I, I mean, I feel like that's uh, my my seventh grade wrestling coach, Mr. Domino, saw me hanging out with a wrong crowd. And he goes, "Moister, you sleep with dogs, you're gonna get fleas." And I said, "Mr. Domino, I don't sleep with dogs. You're crazy." And then he's like, "He punched me in the arm and said, it's your friends, man, watch who you're hanging out with.'" But yeah, there, there's something that I think is so true. And I want to go back to that story that you shared about your student, right? Because I think most pastors who are listening can think of, oh, yeah, that person's sitting in you know second pew, third, third row over. so how how does the church play this supporting role? like what can how can pastors walk with people in a healthy way yeah. through their deconstruction? Because I do feel there's that, and you mentioned it, you named it, there's that pressure, there's that you know the spiraling that kind of is there. What if I lose this person, what's that going to mean? But like, what does it look like to be a shepherd to someone who's deconstructed?
2: Yep. The answer to my question goes back to an experience that I had in Israel two years ago. We were in Israel um, uh, going through Jerusalem at the time. And our tour guide, um, this beautiful, incredible guy, the 50-year-old guy who was our tour guide, who had probably toured Jerusalem a million times. I mean, he he knew everything about the city very kind of respected to our guide. Um, And we were at lunch and he, um, I don't know how it came about, but uh, we started talking about the Holocaust. And I said to him, I said, can I have permission to ask about your family's story? And he looks at me as the only time in our entire trip, I saw any emotion from this guy. And he, he looked at me with a tear coming down his face. And he said, you are the first person who has ever asked for
3: permission to ask. And I'm sitting there and
2: and he said, by the way, no, I'm not willing to talk about it. And he goes, but thank you for asking. That's the first time that's happened. I came back from that trip and met a young woman who had gone through a deconstruction experience. She had been raised in a Christian home. And the way she described her Christian home was that her mom, her mom had no boundaries. And she said, What I remember as a kid is my mom would just come into my room, but she would never knock. She would just barge right in and do whatever she wanted. She ne- there were no boundaries. And in college, she deconstructs her faith. At the, end of her, at the end of her college years, she has a kid, which makes you really
3: want God. And she starts reading the book of Revelation. And she comes to the passage where Jesus stands at the door and not. And she said,
2: for the first time I could believe because I recognized God had better boundaries than anybody. And it whisked me
3: back to Israel, that experience. When you have spent
2: your life having something berated down your mind or your heart or your soul, Often the way we push people further away from Jesus is forcing or coercing spiritual conversations that people aren't ready for. And friends, in the same way that we would apply consent to sexuality, I think we need to apply what I call spiritual consent. And that is, one of the greatest ways I can serve people is I can ask for permission to come in. And if they say no, then be okay with that. But if they say yes, stand at the door and knock. Be honest and be willing to lead and shepherd, but don't, don't give non-consensual spiritual advice. Like practice allowing space for people to give consent. So rather than going and saying, I just noticed that you've been quoting a lot of really weird podcasts and it seems like you're undoing your faith. Rather than doing that, go to the person and say, I've observed some things, but I want you to know. I'm available to talk. And if you would invite me in, can I have permission to have a conversation with you? And if they say no, be okay with it because Jesus is willing to stand at the door and knock.
0: Wow. AJ, I think think that's why there is a hunger and a thirst for pastors to be in relationship with spiritual directors because Mm -hmm. they feel like there's not that space that someone's standing at the door knocking to. Sorry, I didn't mean to move us in a different direction.
2: Well, I mean, Doug, at the end of the day, uh, I've been in a spiritual director, my my spiritual director going on six years and never once. I I can't recall one time where the conversation started and he started by saying, I feel like I'm supposed to tell you this today.
3: Mm -hmm. It
2: always begins by him inviting me to share where I am at in my life. And then he leads that conversation. To a conversation about spiritual life and and, and Jesus, um, there is something to be learned from spiritual directors. Mm. And this mm. is not to say that pastors are suck suck at this. No, pastors really really hard jobs, and we need to stop. I should say this too: if you're walking through doubt and deconstruction, I've served as a pastor. I'm going to stick up for a second. It is unfair to demand that a pastor and a church service fully address your every epistemic nuanced question every Sunday. It is mm. unfair. You are treating the church like it's Jesus Christ and it's not. Release the pressure a little bit mm. and find an environment with a friend, a spiritual director where you can take the nuanced fine print and deal with it. But for God's sake, stop making your pastor need to be the savior of your life. They can't do it. They're human beings with kids. They're broken, often with kids, often with friends. These are, you hear my point. Yeah. We, we've got a lesson, lesson. And here, oh my goodness gracious. This new thing where people are coming to our churches, being told on Twitter, if your pastor doesn't say this on Sunday, you should da-da-da-da-da-da. That is, thats that is, who, who are you to determine
3: what the spirit of Jesus is doing in a local church? Who are you? Who
2: are you? Stop using Twitter and, and, and treating it like the inerrant word of God. <laughs> as though everything said there should apply to the church. Wow. You're going to get some emails about this. And I'm, <laughs> I'm fine with that. But remember, we have a disproportionate amount of pressure that we place on a few people mm. to, to, to be our spiritual fix-it-alls and it's unfair.
1: Yeah. yeah, no, that's a good word. Now let's flip this just a little bit because you're addressing people that aren't pastors that might be having doubts and the expectations unfairly placed on pastors. What wisdom would you offer to those pastors who are actually going through their own doubt and deconstruction right now? Some yeah. feel on one end, I can never share this with anybody. Yeah. I don't care how safe it is, so I'm going to stuff it and the others that air their their laundry every Sunday from the pulpit yes. of their own deconstruction. so what wisdom? Practical, theological, relational, yep. would you give to somebody yep. as a pastor who's listening to this right now saying, What do I do with my own stuff, AJ? Yep. I,
2: I'm gonna quote Spurgeon here. I let Spur,
1: Spurgeon said, Don't preach to save yourself.
3: And his point is, you're not preaching to work
2: out your own junk. You're preaching is an act of service to God's people. And there, something is unhealthy. When I'm using the pulpit to replace what really should be an hour in a counselor's office or in a spiritual director's office, I need to remember these are sheep, not camel. It's not their job to carry my crap for me. Mm. A sheep can't handle a whole lot. And we need to be cautious to put on the single mother of three in our church, our epistemic challenges, because we need to work it out from the pulpit. We need safe environments where we can do that. That doesn't mean we don't share our challenges, but we do it in a discerning and a smart and thoughtful way that includes dialogue among other people. Have I asked my church board if I should share about this? Have I asked my spiritual director? Have I asked my spouse? Have I invited God into the conversation about whether I should share this uh, or not? And I say all that to say, you know, there, there is this kind of breed of, of homiletical, almost homiletical like um this this kind of homiletical thing where we get up and we just download on the church all of our problems i just want to remind you there's people in the gathering today who really just need somebody to point to jesus and not point to your own issues but that doesn't mean you shouldn't have a place to deal with it spiritual direction counseling a community of people other pastors who you can be who you can laugh with and you're not competing with um these sorts of things i think are are really critical for a shepherd. There is not a preacher in the world who does not have doubts. Martin Luther, I mean, one of my favorite pastors in the world, told me one Easter Sunday, they were like, how do I preach the resurrection? I'm really struggling to believe the whole thing in the first place. And he said, you know, I just preached. And I hope that by preaching it, I hear the gospel for myself. (laughs) You know, Mm. we all walk through those seasons. Hiding them isn't serving anybody. We just need the right place to take them. There's this kind of thing where I I feel like we do this, whoever can preach the most raw internal struggles gets the most, I call it scar wars. Uh, (laughs) Like I've got the, I've got the biggest scar, you know, like I've got the biggest problem and I've got the biggest, that's just one-upmanship. That's not me serving God's people. That's homiletical, you know, self-service. So that's my initial thought. Just these are sheep, not camels.
1: Yeah, that's great. Well. Let's, we could, we could talk for another hour on this and, uh, but we want to land the plane here. I, I want, I want to end, we talking about deconstruction and doubt, but let's talk about trusting, believing and mm-hmm. chapter 11 of your book, you said we need to trust in the right way. Yes. What, what does it mean to trust in the right way? What are you talking about when you talk about trusting in the right way?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it is interesting. The Bible doesn't have a sinner's prayer. Um, I I like the sinner's prayer. I still use it. I pray like pretty much every day, but it's not in the Bible, but we do have not the sinner's prayer, but we have the doubters prayer in the Bible. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Um, We do have a prayer for the doubter. Um, We, we have a pathway to, to trust God through doubt. We have a a, a whole book that, that really tries to lay that out. Um, And, for me, the issue of trust is a core spiritual direction, a core spiritual formation issue, because if we, if we trust in the wrong way, if when, okay, we say we trust God, that's true. But what do you mean by that? What do you mean by trusting in God? And the, the way I like to illustrate this is, and this is not an attempt at all to beat up the author of this book. But when I was 16 years old, um, the first Christian book I read was I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And the the premise of this book was... It, it, whether it was a premise or not, it was the received premise was, if you're faithful to God, you will marry an awesome person, have a great sex life, and all will work out well. So my generation believed that. And we thought that if we could be faithful to God, that we could that we could, we would get it all. And we found out that that's not the way it works. And that sometimes people that are faithful to God go through hell. And sometimes people that are faithful to God don't get married. And sometimes people that are faithful to God don't have a really good marriage. And that, and, and that there is a difference, there's a fundamental difference between trusting in Jesus and trusting in Jesus
3: for stuff. And, and the difference between these two,
2: you know, when my, I love worshiping with contemporary Christian music, but whenever I hear the worship song that goes, you're never gonna let, never gonna let me down. I wanna put my hands over my son's ears. Mm. because
3: following Jesus, he will let you down. You know, I trust, I, let me put it this way. I trust my wife more than any human being in the world. I trust my wife more than anybody, but I do not trust my wife to not lose my keys. I trust Jesus more than anybody, but I do not trust him to not hurt my feelings.
2: I do not trust him to give me everything I want, I do not trust him. That I will not go through hard times, because I I know I've come to learn there's a difference between trusting in Jesus, and trusting in Jesus for stuff. Mm. And it, it's the way you know it's like doing a trust fall. I remember watching this YouTube video, of a kid who's standing with his dad behind him to do trust fall for the first time, and the dad goes, "Okay, fall," and the kid falls forward rather than backwards, right? And
3: th- we tr- often we trust God the wrong way. Mm.
2: We don't trust God implicitly. We trust God for stuff. And the minute we start trusting God for stuff, we set ourselves up for a lifetime and discipleship of unmet expectations. Mm. Mm. Well, that's a great
1: word. AJ, it's such a joy to have you back on the program. Mm -hmm. And I'm also, I know Doug Doug and I both are very grateful that you're in a, a different place knowing that that was raw, and but we're grateful how you stewarded that raw season and where you are now, and thank you for the gift of your next book here uh, after doubt and uh, but it's a, it's a joy, Doug, and I love spending time with you, whether it's a podcast or just hanging out and talking. so thanks for uh, for who you are and uh, and and the ways in which you're pushing us to believe Jesus even more. that Jesus is the center, not doubt. and so thank you, thanks for having me. It's a joy to be with you.
0: JR. As soon as that interview was over, you and I both said he's back. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so glad that he could be back on the program. But yeah, just his his vigor, his health, his chutzpah, yeah. his hope. He really was in a in a hard place mm. when he joined us back in season one, and uh, really grateful for AJ. And he just, I mean, it, our listeners couldn't see it, but like he was just getting so passionate there at the end when he's talking about you know, it's unfair for you to, yeah. like he's, he's almost standing up from his chair, like, like waving his arms, talking to us on the, on the interview here. I wish everyone listening could have seen that. (laughs) Me too. Me too. It was, it was just
0: really good. And I think too, but even for our pastors who are listening and those who are listening to go back to season one, episode 17, and be able to listen to that and to hear this. And just to know that there's a beautiful resurrection story in the midst of all of that. So, yeah, I mean, just a great guy, good friend. I love. There's so many every time I I'm with AJ, I feel like I just want to hit record on the entire conversation because you don't know what he's going to say. You don't know and it's just so much fun to hear someone who is this passionate about Jesus. And and I think this is the first time I've heard someone be able to articulate the importance of doubt, but actually in in how, how, how to doubt in a helpful, healthy way. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, just su- super, super grateful for that. And really appreciate what he had to say about Twitter. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciated, I've never really thought about the distinction that he made where he said, we should never make doubt the goal, where he said on one side, the conservatives say doubt is terrible. You should never have it. And the other side says doubt is the goal. And I really, he said, Jesus is the goal. And the focus is on Jesus and his kingdom, not on doubt. And, and then he went on to say, don't, uh, you know, the monk, the quote from the monk, don't live with the heretics. Well, that's really good. That, not that we don't associate with them. Don't live with them. And, uh, but his thoughts on permission and yeah. knocking. Yeah. It's really good. And, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, even when he talked about Scar Wars, you know, and like how it's so easy to do that. And we sort of give the authenticity badge out in our culture today. Oh, he's so raw. He's so authentic. He's so, you know, she's, she's just amazing the way she just, you know, yeah, that's good. But let's, yeah. He said, let's reserve that for the therapy couch, not for the pulpit. That was really good. So one other thing he said, and then Doug, I want to ask you what, what stuck out to you, but he said, pastors need places to laugh and not compete with other pastors. We need something and we need to stay away from something. We need to laugh and we need to not compete and uh I, you know I, I we've said this before henry nowen you know pastors need people who don't need them and uh and I, but i love the way aj articulated that with a little bit more specificity on that so Doug, what's what's gurgling up what's bubbling to the surface of of your mind and heart after talking with aj again
0: yeah i i i think some of it for me is just thinking about his the honest conversation around pastors who who I know and you know who are struggling in that space, and just that, yeah, to find a place that's safe, um, a place where you can laugh and not feel that pressure to compete. Uh, I I just I really do think, and for me, it's like I, I my brain got sidetracked into spiritual direction in, in the moment because I think there's something about pastors not feeling safe, and and I know both you and I have had conversations with pastors where. It's the first time they feel like they've ever been actually able to share what's really going on inside, and and I think in some ways that creates that that ambient anxiety that that is there within churches. Like I can't share, you know, who am I sharing with, and I'm hearing all this stuff, and it. I think it just really is a difficult thing. I, I would love to hear how, yeah, like how is the pandemic forming deconstruction as well? Like what what's that looking like for us? So that's probably a little bit more meta. Uh, but then I think too, the other thing of just, I really appreciated AJ naming how much he misses church, the smell of church, the people of church, you know, receiving
1: communion. Um, I'm going to be honest. There's some things about the smell of church I don't miss. There's some people's <laughs> breath I don't want to smell again. Oh, so uh, that's, also I don't know to that.
0: <laughs> that's also <laughs> for us too, because we meet in an old smelly gym it's like, <laughs> and it's cold. We don't miss that. <laughs> uh. But yeah, I just I really appreciate his his heart and posture to serve the church in this way. And uh yeah, super good. grateful for him. And it's just good to see his life. Just the the AJ Spunk was was really great too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's offer a few uh resources and then questions uh to our listeners. First one of course is his book which just came out, After Doubt: How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. The second resource we want to pr- uh, give to you is we're going to put a link in the show notes to that season one, episode 17 uh, interview that we had with AJ. We feel like those are good bookmarks or bookends, I should say. Um, that If you listen to that and then listen to this one, it'll make a lot more sense because there's a lot of overlap and cohesion there. The, the third resource is we want to encourage you all. We've said this before. We said it uh, recently with the interview with Tim Morey, to be involved in spiritual direction. If you haven't tried it before, it's a, a great way uh, to really enter into and cultivate your intimacy with Jesus with no agenda whatsoever. And if you're saying, "How in the world can I find a spiritual director?" Well, here at Kairos Partnerships, that's one of the things that we offer pastors is spiritual direction. So if that's something you say, "I want to do it, I don't even know where to look, just reach out to us uh, through the contact tab, uh, and you can find us on Kairospartnerships.org/contact. Uh, shoot me an email and we'll make sure we get you connected to one of our spiritual directors. Um, So those are some resources. Doug, what are some questions that we can leave with our listeners?
0: I I just keep coming back to that quote that AJ gave us. Pastors need places to laugh and not compete with others. Um, And so the question simply is, where is that place for you? Who are those people with? And I think another question with that is, when's the next time you're going to meet with those folks? Mm.
4: Um, Mm.
0: And then the second one is who is it that we need to gently ask permission and not barge in on in this next Mm -hmm.
1: Mm upcoming? Yeah, so pastors and listeners of the Monday Morning Pastor podcast go. And as you go, would you be reminded that doubt is not wrong? That doubt can be our friend, but it should not be a place that we live in. Like the Vegas Strip, it's good to visit from time to time, but it's a dangerous place to live. And so don't live with the heretics, but remember that Jesus is knocking on the door even of your life and of mine, that he knows boundaries better than anyone else. And may you know that there's a gentle invitation from him to be welcomed into your doubts and welcomed into the doubts of those within your church, if we'll allow him to do so. So go knowing the doubt is not the end. Go knowing the doubt is not terrible but it can be a way in which it leads us to doubt our own doubts and stumble into deeper trust and belief in Jesus, who's worth it.